Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Disability Arts Online assistant editor Joe Turnbull chats with writer, filmmaker Jessica Sechmasoy Urquhart about their PhD research into the royal courts of the Renaissance period and the role that disability played during the era. Welcome to the Disability Anne podcast to Jessica. How are you doing today? I'm good. I've had my first vaccine today. What was that like? Uh, a big gymnasium uh, and just getting told about, oh, you might feel like this tomorrow and stuff like that. So I'm just happy it's done now. Feeling relieved? Yeah. Um, yeah, Jessica, do you want to tell us a bit of background about about you and um, your your research interests? Um, my name's Jessica Sechmasoyarkar. I'm an artistic disabled uh, writer, historian and filmmaker. I'm doing a history PhD currently at the University of St Andrews on the topic of neurodiverse court fools and bodily diverse court wonders, people like dwarfs and giants at Renaissance courts in Scotland and England, so like the Tudors and the Stuarts. Uh, I'm looking at the period about 1500 to the 1600s and I'm trying to shed light on these people's lives because it's not been studied much and because they've left a big impact on these royal courts and rulers. Um, I'm trying to use stuff like TikTok and uh, videos I do for BBC The Social to kind of teach people my age about disabled history and kind of engage people with history in new ways it's kind of funny to use such up-to-date methods <laughs> to talk about something that happened 600 years ago but i think that's really important um yeah do you want to tell us a little bit more about the 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 stuff you do with the bbc i'm a filmmaker but it, with bbc the social i get to do videos that i can write and they cover a lot of topics from stuff like um my new video that will be coming out is about sears music and kind of my experiences as a as an artistic filmmaker look what's my views on it as both a disabled person who she's writing about and as a filmmaker but in the past i've done stuff about things like fire arrows which is kind of random bit of history but I try and look at things about disabled people in the modern day, but also in the past a lot in my videos for them. Yeah, I've seen a few. They're, 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 they're really good. In fact, I think I saw the one that you'd done on um, on anti-vax, the anti-vax movement. Oh, um, it was a really important topic for me. It, it, quite close to me studying that uh, and doing a piece on it for people, uh, but it's something I feel we have to really demystify and we have to kind of expose like people who are taking these beliefs and using it to hurt disabled people yeah do you want to tell us a little bit more about the 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 kind of 
why it was the particular period of of the renaissance and the royal court specifically that kind of interested you for your for your phd research um it's it's kind of peculiar it started um i was doing an english lit degree and my disabilities kind of got in the way and i couldn't get into honors level so i had to take history again and i grew up with stuff like horrible histories and dead famous books which are all these kind of kids history stuff and a lot of the stuff it told you about was quite diverse history um they didn't they would talk about things like uh, the british empire about slavery and things like that in a way that didn't didn't try and hide it from kids but it just kind of took kids and talked to them as human beings and so i learned a lot from these books and at college, I'd kind of fallen out of love with history because we were doing stuff like the Liberals' road to World War Two and all that. And um, thankfully, when I got this this chance, because of I, I didn't get those grades, I started doing history, and then I got the grades for that, and I went on to honours history, and I did courses in Renaissance history with a Dr. Sarah Cockrum, which made me become really interested in the period because it's. It's this period of time where everything's changing, where there's a lot of, uh, there's the kind of medieval period, things that came before, but also modernity kind of coming together. So it was a kind of combination of things like that that made me look further into disabled history, into the history of the court. And I realised, well, there's these people who are, who are like me that had these important positions in the royal court. Um Basically, people natural they're called natural court, court fools, but you could think of them as like neurodiverse people today, court wars, people who were bodily uh, diverse. They got these positions because they were believed to have kind of talents and abilities that other people didn't. One of the most amazing people was Will Summers, and he was given consent by Henry VIII to tell him the truth. So he was like one of the only people who was allowed to speak truths to Henry VIII uh, he would tell him that he had frauds that were taking money off him and things like that uh, and it's because in the period the people at Erasmus wrote about how natural fools had been born that way that they were they were allowed to talk truths to the most powerful people in power and specifically the royal court for me what makes it stand out for looking at that kind of history is it's this treasure trove of sources and evidence for what disabled people's lives were like. If you're looking at kind of legal cases or church documents, you will see disabled people crop up, but often you're not getting as much information about them. But for this period of time, the royal courts became a place where disabled people like this had important roles and they were alongside the most kind of people in the most accounts and records of that time. And um, it's almost, the, the courts are like a lamp that sheds light on disabled people's lives at that period. It's this hidden history of disabled people at the time that you can find so much evidence of and sources and how much they impact court entertainment and rituals and stuff like that. And it, I feel like it can also change our perspectives on rulers, people like Mary, Mary Tudor who are kind of called Bloody Mary and things like that. She was actually very very close to her full Jane and acted as a patron and protector of other people. So it's 
it kind of intimacies how we look at royalty in the past as well. What kind of roles would they play within the courts? And you sort of mentioned that the court jester. Was there other was there other types of roles that they might play? Initially, they're there because, for instance, with natural fools, they were believed to sometimes be more comedic because of that. So there's always a kind of a paradoxical thing with disability in the Renaissance where. There might be elements of ridicule, but there's also this kind of raising up of them. So mm-hmm. fools could be seen as funnier. They could sometimes be seen to be able to see into the future, uh, to be clairvoyant. Um, and also they could speak. They spoke honestly. They didn't hide things. They didn't flatter like so many other courtiers, people at the court would do. So for a ruler, this was a really... A really great thing to person to have at your court, um, yeah. and them and people who were court dwarfs and giants were also companions to rulers, people who were different to those in that society. But because of that, because they weren't a threat like someone like a nobleman might be to a ruler, they could be closer to a ruler than those people could be. Um. Is with uh, with court dwarfs and giants, there's this element where um, they were viewed as wonders, people who were different enough physically that they're wonderful and kind of people to be in awe of, but not different enough that they're seen as monstrous. There's that's that kind of juxtaposition coming in again, where they're kind of they're kind of beautiful. And their difference, but there's people who aren't like that, and they are seen as kind of not as positively in that period. It kind of sounds like almost that there was some element of they kind of had the freedom to say things that perhaps others with a lot more positions of power might not be able mm-hmm. to in some ways. They definitely had agency, and um, there's this kind of with natural fools at the same time, there's this interesting thing, and in, especially in England, where um, people who were called artificial fools, i.e. comedians or people who would make money from making people laugh and stuff like that, they were very looked down upon and distrusted because they were believed to be taking jobs from people like natural fools, from people who couldn't do another job. There was this kind of view that you were born with this ability to do, provide this comedy, to provide these abilities at the court. And artificial fools were people who were impinging on that and trying to take mm-hmm. it over. Uh, and over time, you get people like Archie Armstrong, who was James the first um, court fool. He was an artificial fool. So this is after Shakespeare and the rise of fear starts to change things. You start to have more clowns and people who do comedy for a living, and it becomes less look down upon uh, but there's still a limit for people who aren't natural fools Archie Armstrong um, he continued to serve Charles I until he insulted the archbishop at the time and he was kicked out of court with his coat over his head so there was this kind of element of that that could happen to people who were artificial fools. One of the only cases I've found in in England and Scotland, where I look at where that happens to a natural fool, is um, Patch, an earlier fool of Henry VIII. 
Uh, and it was because he had called Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth some very, very bad stuff. And Henry VIII threatened to kill him. And he had to be protected by, I think it was the master of the horse, like the main man in the stables had to take him in and look after him because there's there was that limit for Henry, you don't insult uh, Anne Boleyn. Mm. I'm interested in the idea of the artificial fool of, as being almost like uh, a renaissance cripping up. <laughs> uh, Robert, is it Robert Arnon? I'm trying to remember his name. He was a, a kind of clown actor for, for Shakespeare and he wrote a book about fools called Fool Upon Fool where it's him recording the lives of different jesters and fools who were natural fools it's almost it is almost like he's kind of showing you look you could base your character on this guy or this guy it's him almost kind of showing his inspiration for his roles which is is weird but it's also a really great source to read for that yeah and so they were influential in that way actually on the early development of of theater as an art form i guess and and so i suppose Going that far mm. back, it's kind of uh, you can't underestimate the sort of uh, the butterfly yeah. effect that could have had on on our forms <laughs> of entertainment that we see today and stuff. Will Summers is probably one of the most famous court fools in history, and he, he's someone who is he wasn't able to tame Henry VIII, but he was able to kind of be a close ally to him and friend. At, in a court where people were always looking out for something, wanting something from them. Um, there's things, things of them, uh, stories of them joking together, uh, of him kind of making, kind of trying to calm Will down when he had difficulties. Will Summers is this really interesting figure because his agency is so obvious that there's been people in the past who've tried to claim he isn't an actual fool. He was very witty and and very witty and intelligent but at the same time he had narcolepsy and needed to have a keeper look after him and to me he comes across as someone who's obviously neurodiverse but over the past few hundred years of history people have been like oh he must have been an artificial fool because of that have you found that being a kind of uh you know a disabled researcher and and doing that research from a disabled perspective Mm -hmm. have you have you come up against barriers within the academic world would you say like taking that perspective or are they very open to that um to that approach as it were you mean coming at it with kind of like with a disabled lens yeah yeah (laughs) is is that kind of seen as is that kind of welcomed within within the academic space would you say it definitely is with my supervisors i initially had um rab uh houston as my primary uh, supervisor um, he's retired now and he's been looking he had looked at things like mental illness and disability in the early modern period in Scotland so like the 1600s um, I'm now have uh, I now have Amy Blakeway Dr Amy Blakeway is my main supervisor and they've been so so accommodating of my disabilities but also accommodating and celebrating the kind of perspectives I bring to this because there has been histories of court fools or 
court dwarfs in the past, but there hasn't really been much crossover between disabled history and uh, it's people who are looking at royal history will talk about it, but people who are doing disabled history will often ignore it. You're in a Venn diagram in the middle there of those two things, Mm -hmm. um, and it's clearly an area that that needs more exploration. It's Yeah, it's interesting because obviously within the disability studies there's been loads of the really positive stuff uh, like the social model and things like that have kind of come from that area Um, but clearly it's also you know it's still it's still a place where disabled people are underrepresented I think within certainly within the the kind of um, the broader research and Mm -hmm. and and within history looking at how disabled people have been represented through history and I suppose it's just often hard to find that history as you said mm. um but the courts offer this the royal courts offer this kind of gold mine as you were saying for kind of uh, for these stories yeah do you think there's anything in those renaissance attitudes towards disability that kind of that we can see mirrored today yeah there's quite a big thing i think is how um how our change in views on disabled people have kind of contributed to society and how disabled people impact the world it's quite um disabled rights movement kind of stuff happened a lot later than for other groups and Mm. people at the union of the physical impaired against segregation their pamphlet in 1976 changed so much and since that we have been trying to get our voices heard and for someone like me who's autistic the idea of neurodiversity is just this fascinating thing to me because it's about how human diversity is a positive. We should kind of put aside the idea of normal, abnormal. There are things, there, to me, they're hangovers from the early modern periods. Um, we need to kind of view human diversity as a good thing. Um, another thing I think we kind of share with the period is just that humans no matter how bad we can be we're also deeply kind of defined by our kindness and compassion as long as uh, as long as humanity has existed if you look at um burial sites of like people in prehistory there's cases of people who oh this person had this injury or whatever and they lived another 20 years we've always cared for each other and in the renaissance this was part of caring for people. They had these important roles, but they were also looked after because of that. I was curious if there's any other kind of um, historical periods that kind of that, that interest you that that kind of beyond the Renaissance. If, if you were to do further research, you know, if you were to do a book in ten years' time on something else, whether there's other historical periods that are like you'd really love to get your teeth stuck into. My my dream is to one day do something that is like. Um, it's like the history of disabled people and there was an amazing documentary I saw recently which was about disabled people but it was from as it often is from the kind of early modern period and mm-hmm. just things like I find it fascinating that even when we were hunting animals and just living I don't know if we were living in caves it's not my area <laughs> but even back then we were looking after each other people in the Egyptian period, there was um, a lot of court dwarfs in that period. Um, there's always, something I find fascinating is 
no matter what period in time and what culture you look at from from an Icelandic Jarl to um, like an emperor in China, most of these ruler figures will have someone in a position that is something like a fool or a court dwarf, especially during the Renaissance. Um, and it, especially what I found fascinating when I was doing my undergrad was Ottoman court disabled figures because um, they also they had court fools and court dwarfs, but they also had a group of non-verbal deaf servants at the court who would be like pages, but um, they helped develop a sign language at court uh, so they could mm. pass on secret messages for the sultan. And occasionally, I've read occasionally they were used as assassins because they were so silent. Um, I would have loved to have pursued that, but the one thing that held me back was my terrible ability to learn languages. And in fact, I would have had to have known Ottoman, Turkish, Persian and Arabic to really study it properly. I think one thing with modern histories of disability, there's so much more of it. The good thing about that is there's so many more personal accounts of being disabled by disabled people. The one thing I found is like a memoir for the Renaissance. It's uh, the Chronica Burlesca, and it's by a disabled court dwarf at Charles V's court in Spain. And he was also Jewish at a time where many of them had been, many Jewish people had been kicked out of Spain. And his book is basically an account of the court and a kind of jokey account of his own life and how um, he says stuff like that his coat of arms has a foreskin on it because his dad's got taken off. Like He does jokes about being Jewish in this book, but also he describes himself as like the gossip monger of the court. So it's, it's fascinating, his account, but it's one of the only ones I've ever found. And because I'm not looking at Spain and I don't know Spanish, I can't unlock it. But I hope someone translates it properly one day because it's never been translated. But with the early modern period and on into modern history, you have so many more accounts by disabled people. Um, one of the biggest is 18th century politician, MP and author William Hay. He did a book called On Deformity about his life living with a disability. Um, there's obviously stuff like the diary of Frida Kahlo and accounts of people who had lived or experienced things like freak shows and institutions. There's so many clearer voices the closer to today you get. And mm-hmm. for me, like a lot of my research, it's like those voices are quite far away and I'm trying to get closer. So I do love that about modern disabled histories. I was when you mentioned it just there. Actually, I was. It, it occurred to me that was was there parallels between the um, yeah the freak shows of the kind of Victorian mm. and early modern era and the kind of the the court um, uh, there's, court fools and that kind of thing. Um, a book I would recommend on that is Rosemary Garland Thomas's book Freakery, where she discusses. And his contributions by other authors um, in disabled studies, talking about the idea of the free and kind of showing that a lot of people who were involved in that, they did have agency to an extent. It was a job that you could succeed in if you had certain disabilities. 
Um, but what she kind of describes is something that my research kind of looks at as well. In the Renaissance, you have these kind of positive views of neurodiversity, bodily diversity. No one's perfect. There's no idea of normal and abnormal in the way we have today. But in the early mm. modern period, medicine, sciences start to change. The royal court starts to change and disabilities, especially once capitalism kind of comes into well, kind of everywhere. Uh, that starts yeah. to define people by how much worth they have to their society, their economy, and things like that. Um, yeah, in a productivity yeah. kind of sense. Yeah. Thompson kind of describes yeah. it as there's this move from wonder to error. People start to be seen as defective, as imperfect. Um, things like intelligence during the the enlightenment are so important suddenly to be like the best human the best brit or whatever you have to be intelligent and society starts to celebrate things that are different to what they celebrated in the renaissance um so there's just this massive change that it still impacts us today and we're starting to overcome it but a lot of the problems that we're going through now are they started in the 1600s 1700s and change in how we view disability yeah i think that's so important it's such an important point because i think i think there's a general misconception that a lot of these things are are have deeper roots than they actually do uh, and some of notions about things like um human nature are, are totally misguided and they're nothing to do with human nature they're they're to do with the kind of uh the capitalist ethos of like production and productivity and, and profit making and and viewing people in those units and those terms um and actually it's really uh enlightening and really um refreshing to kind of get those perspectives from a sort of pre-capitalist era pre-modern era that actually tell a completely different story um, well it's, it's not a golden age um, it People with certain things, like especially like conjoined twins, like certain other disabilities, were seen as negatives. And that, yeah, sure. um, there's always views depending on the time you look at. But I feel like something that's held back so much understanding of disability in the past is, uh, even when we don't mean to, there's still a, there's still an element of wiggism. The kite is this kind of idea in history where humanity is always getting better we're always becoming more advanced more modern mm -hmm. and that means that we think that people in the renaissance must have if you were disabled you must have been left out to die things like that places like uh, sparta uh, in the classical period yeah they did stuff like that but it's this kind of idea that we're better we treat dis we treat disability in our society as better when we're letting people die without benefits in their homes with no heating on and things like that in the modern day. I think that sort of self-congratulatory liberalism is, is so dangerous. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, this idea of progress that you were talking about, yeah, it's, it's it, it leads to complacency and it's also then stops you from seeing the very real problems that are kind of right in front of us. I think it's, it's liberating when we consider like, that it isn't this progression that look, we we have went backwards over the last few centuries but look, 
things are never this permanent movement. It's societies are just very different in how they view disability and um hopefully we're learning more than we have in the past. Yeah, and that leads me on to the to a point I wanted to raise and if when we're kind of following the social model of disability it kind of tells mm-hmm. us that the disability is a social construct really so it's kind of something that's always socially constructed so therefore it must always be mm-hmm. uh constructed differently in different societies and different time periods i guess and so do you think yeah do you think that disability was just almost conceived in a completely different way um in in other periods sometimes when we apply um social theory of disability, the social model of disability to history, it can sometimes guide our kind of thinking of the period. I do feel that disabled people and disability, it's always existed, but how we view it, how people experience being disabled has changed over time and between cultures. And one of the biggest and earliest figures in disabled history, Henry Jacques Spiker, he noted he noted that every society has precise social and cultural constructions of things like disability. We have to understand mm-hmm. a society to to know how they understood disability. And there's so much, it's, it's so complicated trying to do that, but when you look at a time period's view on disability from their perspective, it starts to make sense especially with the study of neurodiversity in the past, that's very changeable um, in the Renaissance. Um, people like Christopher Goody describe it as um, you weren't viewed as kind of different in kind. You weren't different, like born as this different entity. Like someone, like someone with autism is born autistic. You were seen as different in degree. So you're mm-hmm. foolish, but... It's this kind of spectrum of humanity. Um, and I feel like um, one thing that uh, you kind of see over time, like different societies have very different views of it. And the biggest change, uh, as I've mentioned, is during the early modern period, what societies in places like England and Scotland saw as something to privilege changed what what things like being an actual fool or a dwarf or giant what kind of they became was undesired undesired differentness in Goffman's words and once you're kind of not desired and seen as uh, important in society that's kind of when stigmatisation when when people start to become objects of prejudice and it's it um Vogel isn't that good a historian and he's better at other things, but his work is still influences today in history. Uh, in his book Madness and Civilization, he talks about how in the early modern period uh, the voices which the Renaissance had liberated suddenly all those disabled people and mentally ill people began to be put into institutions. Um, And it's just, it's tragic. It's this move from the royal court into positions uh, in places where they had no power. Um, And as someone that has kind of had experience of that, um, 
it's a very personal kind of history for me to study and I feel like I owe it to the hundred the people over those hundreds of years that were impacted by institutions and this change in view on disability. This feels like quite a good place to stop, but um, is there anything else that you, you haven't said that you'd like to say or anything else you'd particularly like to talk about? Just the study of um, uh, how words change when it comes to disability mm. are very intriguing. Um, a recent kind of example of it uh, is how in Britain we view the SP word as a terrible slur and the reason why that happened was um, disabled man with cerebral palsy and writer Joey Deacon appeared on um, Blue Peter in 1981 and instead of inspiring kids it made him and the SP word become a slur and mm-hmm. I find that really depressing, but it's why in places like America and Australia that word's used more like fool or idiot is. There's this movement of historical de- terms for disabled people. Over time, they become more specific and sometimes become slurs. So terms that were used as the kind of medical and up-to-date term, suddenly over time they become offensive. Uh, and yeah, it's... It's happening especially fast with, as an autistic person, like, it used to be terms like Asperger's that were used, but that's kind of been put aside now, partly because he was an awful guy, but also because things like autism spectrum disorder make more sense. So understanding disability a lot of the time also means understanding words. Um, yeah. thing I forgot to mention was uh, I'd pitched for this disabled history article uh, a week ago um, and it was a paid opportunity so I did that and I got a knock back and the person's reply was uh, very interesting they basically said they didn't think, they were going to pass because they didn't think that um, court fools and dwarfs had had any impact on history uh, even though they're interesting they had no impact and just by and I think it's, I think the person who's probably seen the terms used, maybe that impacts them. Maybe they just think in terms of those stereotypes of these people that that these figures were just figures of ridicule. But I feel that any disabled history is um, incomplete if we don't consider pre-modern disabled history like the Renaissance. Yeah, and that seems provably false to me, given the <laughs> the prominence of of fools in writing like Shakespeare's mm. writing and things like that it's yeah <laughs> it seems like a not particularly informed position for that person to have taken <laughs> but but uh, there we go <laughs> um i suppose just as uh, what might also be nice to end on is kind of what would you say to anyone who's maybe thinking about studying history or maybe isn't interested in history about about why you think studying history is an important thing to do if you're thinking of doing history you should go for it because there's so many cases where you will be able to see people like yourself but also people who are very different you'll be able to see cultures that are incredible and experiences that are very much like ours today and 
Um, I feel especially with disabled history, it shows how disabled people have always impacted history. We've always had a place in society, no no matter where you are in the world, disabled people have left their mark. Um, And studying history is... It's it's incredible. You get to experience whole other worlds and uh, time periods, and it's both alien and familiar. And it's, it helps change your view on on society today, and and kind of how you can change things. Thank you, Jessica. That was absolutely amazing. I learned so much. What a really interesting conversation. Um, and so much to unpack and, and so many names and lots of further reading for us all to do, I think. Um, <laughs> and so I'd just like to thank Jessica for joining us on the Disability Young podcast. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.